for those of you that, ha- that, that kind of know our family a little bit, you know that our house um, was kind of a train wreck when we bought it, and we kind of tore it down to the studs and built it back up um, from nothing. And uh, when we did that, my wife said, like, this is the house I want. This is my dream. I can see it. And I said, the problem with that is I don't know how to do any of this stuff. I have like a um, my father-in-law gave me like a, uh, like a starter toolkit one Christmas because I was totally inept and <laughs> it had like a little drill and uh, that's all I had. And, and so I got on YouTube and I figured out how to rebuild a house. And uh, sometimes that went really well. Sometimes I watched a video and did the thing on the video and it turned out great. Not so much with drywall. I don't know if you've ever done drywall. Drywall, hanging drywall is not very difficult, I don't think. You put the thing on the, the wall and you screw it in and you're done. Taping and mudding drywall, that's a challenge. And it does, the, th- the thing about the YouTube videos is they look really easy. You take this sloppy goo and you spread it on the wall and you go down like this and you're done and it's brilliant. Some people even wear stilts while they're doing it because they're like pros. And I thought, well, I can do that. If you've ever been to uh, our upstairs bathroom, you know that I can't do that because it's horrible looking. Um, That was my most significant mudding experience, and I've hired that out since. Because sometimes just watching stuff isn't good enough to learn how to do it. Sometimes it can actually be dangerous. My youngest daughter uh, loves to watch me work, and uh, I did a lot of minor electrical work in our house, and I was very clear that daddy has tools, and daddy's being safe, and he's touching this outlet with his screwdriver, but you never, ever do that, right? And she goes, yes, I never, ever do that. So a couple months ago, I got a picture from my wife, and it is coming up soon. Cue the picture. There you go. That's an outlet in her house that has a couple screws in it because she just decided to put some screws in the outlet. My wife's all like, is it okay? She's like, well, she didn't die when she put them in, so you're not going to die pulling them out. <laughs> but when you need to learn something, sometimes there's more training involved than just watching somebody do something and trying to figure it out. So we're going to start in in Matthew 10 today, and if you don't have a Bible with you, the Bible in front of you, it's on page 863. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to start to send his disciples out to do some work of the ministry. And we're getting into a section in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us for a while, you'll remember that Matthew's divided up into five major sections, and each section has a period where Jesus speaks, and then Jesus does. Jesus speaks, and then Jesus does. And we saw that he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, and everybody was just awed at his authority, how he taught like he actually knew what he was talking about. And then we saw in chapters 8 and 9, examples of Jesus' authority. We saw that Jesus had authority over sickness. We saw that he had authority over the weather. He had authority over sin. He has the authority over death. And in chapter 10, he's going to begin to delegate that authority to his disciples. And I love this because a couple of weeks ago, when we finished chapter 9, it ended with him challenging his disciples to pray 
The last verse of chapter, or the last couple of verses of chapter nine says, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He said, you guys, you need to start praying that God will choose people, that he will raise people up to go out into the world and t- spread the news of the kingdom. And then the very next section is like, surprise, it was you guys all along. <laughs> So be careful what you pray for. You might have to actually do it. But there's no, there's no bystanders in our faith, right? There's, no, there's nobody that just gets to sit on the sidelines. If you are not a part of what's going on with the way the kingdom is moving forward in the world, something is wrong. And you need to, you need to figure that out. What, if, I'm, if I'm not engaged at all in what Jesus is doing in the world, I, I, need to, I, I need to kind of think that through. But we're going to take a look at these 12, 12, 12 apostles, 12 disciples. And the truth about this is Jesus spends the bulk of his time with these men. He spends time teaching them about the kingdom of God. They, they watch him as he heals the sick, as he raises the dead, as he cleanses lepers and as he drives out demons, he talks with them about it. He takes them aside privately and instructs them in it. And now he's going to send them out to start doing the things that he's doing. And this for Jesus, this is the plan of, of how he's going to reach the world with his message. Now, Jesus came to earth to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, to bring us salvation. But he also came to earth to inaugurate the kingdom of God, to say God's rule on earth is beginning right here. It's ground zero, and it's going to spread around the world. And there's a lot of ways he could have done that. He could have risen from the dead and then just stayed here, been kind of like an unaging guru for the next 2,000 years. And if you wanted to come learn from Jesus, you'd go to Jerusalem where he had a little shop set up and you could learn. Or he could have wrote a book himself about his teachings, or he could have done, you know, he could have created a like cosmic billboard in the sky. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, right? But what he chose to do was spend the most of his concentrated time over the course of three years giving everything that he had to these 12 guys. And those 12 guys are supposed to turn around and change the world. And there's no, there's no plan B for Jesus. This is, this, is the, this is the plan. Like, if they screw it up, then there is no church, right? We're 2,000 years removed from these events. And, and if, if these 12 guys were, like, not into it, we wouldn't be here. And so this is what he chose to do. He taught the crowds, he healed individual people that were in need, but most of his time was spent with these 12 men. So verse one says, summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Authority, Jesus has authority. Matthew's been talking about his authority He's operating under his father's authority. 
And he's handing off some of this authority to his disciples. He's delegating it to them. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. Verse 1, they're called disciples. Verse 2, they're called apostles. Disciple means learner. Apostle means sent one. And so this is Matthew's way of saying that they've kind of shifted in their relationship a little bit. They've been sitting at the feet of Jesus. They've been learning. They've been growing. And now there's a job to do. Now they're ready to go out. They're being sent into the world to do the things that they've learned. First, well, before we get to the list, there's more than 12 Right? There's, there's a lot of disciples. There's a lot of people that are following Jesus. We learn in um, the book of Acts that there were a couple people that they, that they knew of that had been with Jesus from the very beginning that were not part of the 12. And so in the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus goes off and he prays all night long before he makes this decision. He stays up all night talking to the Father about who to pick. And these are the guys that he picks. And I wonder, like, why did he pick them? Did he just, like, wait for, for the father to say, Simon is one of them? Or did he, like, go, like, well, this guy's got these qualities and this guy's got these other qualities and they'll work well together? Was it, like, a strategic thing or was it just a spiritual kind of his, in the providence of God, these are the guys? We don't know. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say why they were picked. A lot of people have guessed but these are the guys that he picked. He picked 12. Um, That's an important number. There are 12 tribes in the people of Israel. The the way that God connected with the people of God in the Old Testament was represented through these 12 tribes. And so Jesus is kind of saying, the way that God is going to connect with people now is not completely dissimilar. There are some major changes. We've talked about some of those changes, but it's not completely different than the way God has interacted with his people in the past. 12 apostles, 12 tribes. So who are these guys? First, Simon, who is called Peter. So Simon Peter, Simon uh, is his given name. Peter is a nickname that Jesus gives to him uh, that means rock. And he's the leader. He's always the first in the lists of the apostles. And when we see him in the book of Acts, he takes charge pretty quick. He preaches a sermon. Thousands of people get saved. He's kind of um, running the church in Jerusalem for a while. Uh, in, the, in the Protestant tradition, which we're a part of, we, like the whole Protestant church is like anti-Catholic by default, right? Like that's, that's we, we cut away from the Catholic church. And so we don't like the Catholic church. And so because of that, we have this tendency to downplay Peter because in the Catholic tradition, Peter is the first pope. And then he gives authority to all the rest of the popes in succession. And, and the Protestants said, no, we don't, we don't believe the pope has been given that authority by God. And so we're going to talk, talk smack about Peter and say he's not that awesome. And, but the truth is, he is the leader. He's, he's given, whether he is a natural leader or God, or whether God gave him supernatural abilities, he's kind of the leader. We see that played out. And, and while the whole Pope thing is kind of suspect, he does have that role. And then Andrew, his brother. 
That's kind of what Andrew's known for. He's Peter's brother. It's kind of, anybody a younger brother? Like, <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> um, they're both fishermen by trade. And they have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, we learn in other places that they were probably younger and wealthier fishermen. Zebedee, their father, had a whole kind of fleet of fishing boats. Jesus nicknames them sons of thunder because they kind of had a temper. And they like to knock heads together. And, and Jesus said, that's not how we do it in my kingdom. So he had to, he had to instruct them in that. Philip and Bartholomew, don't know a whole lot about them. Thomas, I like Thomas. He's one of my favorites. He's, he's cynical. He's sarcastic. Like almost everything he says in the gospels is sarcastic. And he has, he has faith. He believes. He's, he's a part of the team, but he's like always running his mouth. And I, I like that about Thomas. Matthew, the tax collector. This is, this is who's writing this book. We learned about Matthew and his call in the last chapter. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. We don't know a lot about those guys. Simon, the zealot. The zealots were a political party who believed in the violent takeover of the Roman occupiers of Judea. They wanted to just kick out the Romans by force. And that, that creates an interesting relationship in the midst of these guys because Matthew is an employee of the Roman government and Simon is someone who wants the Roman government destroyed violently. So there were some probably pretty good conversations at the dinner table about politics. And then Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So Judas is always listed last in the list of the apostles. And it's almost always said he's the one that betrayed him. The authors of, of, of the the Gospels, they're writing after the fact, and so they know this, but, but I'm not convinced that anybody knew that at the time. When Jesus picked Judas, there was, I don't think there was any reason to believe that he was the betrayer. In fact, we learn elsewhere that he was kind of the treasurer. They trusted him with the money. In the Gospel of John, it, it's pretty clear that Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. But, but I wonder, like, when, when Jesus went up to pray all night, was he like, I need somebody who, who will betray me? Who's, who's a jerk? Let's pick that guy. Like, I, I wonder if that was the conversation or if he was genuinely picking Judas because he wanted Judas to be with him. Psalm 41, if you want to turn there, um, is... is traditionally considered a messianic psalm, which means that it's prophetic. It talks about things in Jesus' life before Jesus is born. And David writes in Psalm 41, verse 9, even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And, and traditionally, that's taken to be about Judas, that Judas betrayed Christ. And, but if, that's, if we're to take that psalm seriously, then it was a real betrayal. That Jesus thought, at least at one point, that Judas was a friend. And the reason I bring that up is because I, I think we, we, tend, we tend to simplify Judas when I think he's probably more complicated than that. 
Um, he's definitely an enemy. He's considered an enemy of God. Jesus says it would have been better if he'd never been born for betraying Christ. We see Judas consistently calling Jesus rabbi or teacher when the other disciples call him Lord. And so it seems like Judas never really believes Jesus. He, he's never really convinced. Judas is a, is a person just like the other disciples who, are, who is excited about the coming of the Messiah, that one would come and he's going to re- rescue the people of God from Rome. He's going to kick out the Romans and set up the Messianic kingdom. And Judas is on the inside circle of that new kingdom. He's going to be a big shot in the new government. And it doesn't play out like that. And I'm kind of just guessing, but it kind of makes sense to me that one of the reasons why he ended up betraying Christ, other than he's very specifically um, commissioned by the devil, according to the Bible, to do that, is that he was disappointed in Jesus. Jesus didn't do what he said or what he thought Jesus was going to do. And that doesn't make his actions better. I mean, he still greatly sinned and betrayed the Lord, but I think it makes him a little more real. And the reason I think this is meaningful, at least to me, is because I tend to caricature people. You ever been like caricatured at the fair? You see somebody drawing people and it's like, like I've got big ears, but a caricature of me is going to have really big ears or, or a really big nose or, or really exaggerated facial features. And it's, it's because it's things that are there, but they're way bigger than they should be. And sometimes I do that. Like, oh, you're a Democrat? I know all about you. Oh, you're a Trump voter? Oh, I know all about you. You're... You're gay? Oh, I've, I've got that figured out. And I don't, I don't look at people as people. I just look at them as that one thing that stands out above everything else. And then I make assumptions about them. And that's usually kind of hurtful. And so that just reminded me as, as I was reading this week about Judas is that we just think like Judas, the betrayer, He's a very one-dimensional character, and I think he probably isn't. I think he's bigger and broader than that, and, and I think we would do well to treat everyone as real people and not, not caricature them. So, these are the 12. These are the guys that Jesus chooses. He's going to spend his time with them. He's going to train them, and he's going to send them out preach the gospel of the kingdom. He gives them authority to heal sickness and drive out demons. And then he's going to give them some instructions. So starting in verse 5, we see Jesus' instructions for this mission. And these, these commands are somewhat temporary. He's going to very explicitly change a couple of them later on. He's going to say, remember when I told you to do that? Now I want you to do the exact opposite of that. So it's not like this list of commands is, is the one that we um, hold on to for all of time. But there's a lot in here that we can learn from. So in verse 5, Jesus says, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
This is kind of a weird thing because all throughout this book, Matthew has been hinting that salvation is bigger than just for the Jews. The first people to recognize the divinity of Christ were the wise men, Gentile nobility. Jesus heals the centurion's servant, a Gentile. He, he tells a story about how many will come from the East and West, non-Jewish people, to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and kind of as a rebuke to his own people that the kingdom is bigger than they thought. And so over and over and over again, Matthew is telling us that the kingdom is bigger than just the Jews, but then Jesus says, don't go tell the Gentiles or the Samaritans about your message. Just stay in the towns of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in one sense, this idea is, is pretty consistent throughout Scripture. Like the Jews get the good news first, and then it spreads out to the Gentiles. But it's also an idea that Jesus is saying, don't think you have to cover a lot of ground here. The Jewish settlements would have been nearby. It would have taken longer to get to Samaria. It would have taken longer to get to the Gentile territories. And so in a certain sense, Jesus is just saying, start small, stay where you are. Don't think that this mission is bigger than it has to be. And I think we feel that way when we think that that God is calling us to do something, that it has to be this big and glorious and grand thing when, when it just... It just has to be something. We've been talking about this in our community a lot on Thursday nights, and we've been kind of discussing how do we get out into the city and and share the love of Christ with people. And a few weeks ago, again, my six-year-old, who is my favorite sermon illustration, said, we should make casseroles. And everybody laughed. But then we were thinking like, yeah, maybe we should. What if we got together and we made a bunch of meals and figured out who could use a meal and just just drop them off and say, hey, we love you in Jesus' name. And so we're working on that. We're working on figuring out what organization could we partner with to just provide kind of emergency meals. And we could, you know, make a day of it, get together and and, and make a lot of pre-made casseroles and, uh, and serve people that way. That's a small thing. But it's a thing, right? It's, it's a way to serve. It's a way to be active in the community. So Jesus says, don't go too far. Just stay close. Preach the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse seven, as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely give. See, in Jesus' mind, the mission begins with the message. Preach the kingdom of God. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. We can't divorce the work of the kingdom with the word of the kingdom. Back in the early 20th century, there was this movement in the church to, uh, because Science had progressed uh, to a place where people were doubting parts of the Bible scientifically. And, and the, many in the church said, you know, people in this modern age of 1900, they don't trust the Bible anymore. 
it's not helpful for us to tell people what the Bible says because maybe, you know, maybe Jesus isn't even real. We can't trust any of it, but we can do good things. So let's just focus on doing good things. And so many people in the church went this way and, and many denominations went this way and just stop talking about sin. Stop talking about salvation in Christ. Stop talking about miraculous things and just did, just did good things in the community. And, and there was another group in the church that said, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to be focused on the whole truth of the Bible. And that's, this is what the fundamentalist movement kind of came from. And, and then that spawned the evangelical movement later on. And today there's a similar um, kind of sentiment in the church that maybe we should just stop telling people about their sin. Maybe we should stop challenging them because nobody really likes that. Nobody really likes to be told they're wrong. And it's uncomfortable. I don't like to do it. They don't like it when I do it. It's a win-win if we just do nice things for people and don't bring up all this stuff. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus, Jesus is clear that the things that you're going to go out and do, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons, those are directly related to the message of the gospel. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is here. This is what it looks like. All of our good deeds divorced from the message of the gospel, they don't make any sense. I mean, they're nice, Jesus' message is bigger than that. I'm here. I am life. I am health. I am freedom, Jesus says. These things that I'm going to give you power to do come from who I am. And so we can't lose that. I was at Costco a couple of weeks ago, and it was really, really busy, like it always is at Costco. And I had to park all the way in the farthest parking spot by 4th Street. And I, I got my stuff and I, I got my cart out to my car and I was putting my stuff in my car and there was a lady that was a couple cars over in the same lane, 100 miles from the door. And she got her cart unloaded at the same time and she looked up about the same time as I did and saw the cart return was like way down there. And I said, hey, can I take that for you? And, and she, she said, yeah, that'd be great. And so I took her cart for her. And that was a nice thing to do, but that wasn't the gospel. That wasn't the kingdom of God. Like she didn't go like, wow, he must love Jesus. No, she didn't, she didn't take that. She thought, well, that was nice, I hope. And that's okay. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with doing nice things, but we can't fool ourselves into thinking by just doing nice things for people, we are acting in a way that is Christian. We're just acting in a way that is nice. And so at some point or other, and Jesus would say pretty early, I think, we need to say, hey, this is why we are doing the good that we are doing, because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is life, because Jesus brings freedom, and we're his people, and we offer that to you. Verse 9, don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his food. So the verbs used in this section aren't so much about taking things. They're more about 
um, obtaining things, if, you, if, if there's a difference in that. So it's not that like, well, I have a, I have a shirt. That's fine. It's don't, don't go fundraise for a shirt. Don't go, don't go find gold and silver. Like, don't overthink this. Don't prepare too much. You don't need to set up a GoFundMe or have a bake sale or, or do a bunch of preparatory work for this mission that I'm sending you on. Just get what you have and go. And this is one of the things that Jesus specifically changes later on. He said, remember when I told you not to take anything with you? Now I'm saying, take some stuff with you. But right now, he says, don't. And I think the principle is useful because Jesus is saying, just take what you have, trust God and go. He will provide for you. Trust that whatever you need will be taken care of. And the hard thing for us is that we need to be seeking God in this. When we have a decision, should I, should I just buy a plane ticket and, and fly across the ocean and become a missionary? Or should maybe I take a couple years and learn the language and raise some money and get support? And There's not a verse for that. It's, I don't know, pray about it. Seek the Lord. Figure out what He wants you to do. I, I know a, a missionary who Many years ago, he, he flew, he, he bought a one-way ticket to Thailand because he was going to go be a missionary in Thailand. And he landed in Thailand, and had, I think he had like $50 to his name. He had no plan. By the end of the day, he had adopted an orphan child. And now he has this amazing orphanage that's like 30-something years old, I think. And he's doing great work for the Lord. And he just, he just went because that's what God wanted me to do. And I don't, I don't know... I don't know the language. I don't have any money. I don't have any support. I'm just going to go and I'm going to do it. And God bless that. But then we also, we support missionaries, the Herman family. They were here earlier in the year and, and they're part of a missions group. They're organized. They take time to study the language and build up teams and raise support and have people praying for them. And, and there's strategy and planning involved. And, and you can't say one is good and the other's bad, one is different than the other. And, and, and you, we have to decide which is for us based on what the Lord speaks to us. See, the thing about the relationship we have with God is that it's a relationship. We don't have a train, we just don't have a manual that we go through. Like, what do I do? And we flip it open and there's the directions. Sometimes we have to actually ask the Lord and hear his voice speak in the here and now. We need God's wisdom. In this situation, God's wisdom is don't take anything, just go. But later on, he's going to have something different to say. Verse 11, when you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Create a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus is saying, expect success and resistance. So I think it comes down to whether, you're not, whether or not you're an optimist or a pessimist. 
Like I'm a pessimist. Like every time I step out and share my faith or, or do something that's kingdom related, I think it's going to go terribly. And I'm genuinely surprised when it doesn't. But maybe you're not that way. Maybe you think it's always going to be awesome and then somebody shuts you down and you get really sad about that. But Jesus says both things are going to happen. There are going to be people that hear the message of the kingdom and rejoice with you, that invite you into their homes. And there are going to be people that reject you on this trip. And I love how he says, when you find a house that's worthy, when you find a house that accepts the message of the gospel, stay there. Commit to that. Stay with those people until you leave. Now, they know that they're not going to be there forever. This is a short-term trip. They're probably only there for a couple days. But the act of embedding with a group of people is so much more powerful than skipping around. Like, think about how much more deeply they can invest in a single family that they live with for three or four days than if they just, you know, went door to door, giving 10 minutes to everybody in the, the town. This is like a a little picture of what Jesus himself is doing. Like he taught the crowds, but most of his time was spent with his 12 guys. He poured into them and he says, do something similar when you're out on this trip. Don't spend all your time amongst the crowds. Go in, embed with some people because when you leave, those people will have been built up and understand the kingdom in a way that they can be a light in their city and that can spread. He says, dust off your feet. If they won't, they won't accept you in that town, just shake the dust off your feet. It'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There's two aspects of this that I think are really important and they're repeated throughout scripture. But one is when you're not accepted, don't worry about it. Shake the dust off your feet. Don't fight them. Don't argue with them. Don't call down fire from heaven like James and John wanted to do that one time. Just shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it, right? In the judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah were this city that, were des- that was destroyed by fire from heaven for their wickedness. And Jesus is saying, the town that rejects me is going to suffer a worse fate than that. But notice how it's not the disciples' job to bring that fate to be. They're just supposed to go, okay, we're going to go to the next town. Not worry about it. God will take care of it. And I think that's good for us to remember because we want desperately to be the instruments of God's judgment, don't we? Like, I want to hurt people that hurt me. I want to hurt people that hurt other people. I want to stand up for Jesus and, you know, call down fire on the enemies of God. Last week, 200-something people were killed in Sri Lanka celebrating Easter, brothers and sisters in Christ. And you feel like, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to just cause a ruckus. Like, right? I don't know what I would do. I would, I would get killed. But, but you still feel that way. You want to you avenge that kind of loss. And, and God says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to deal with it. Nothing is getting past me. Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. 
So they're going to go and they're going to do some amazing things. All the things that Jesus says they're going to do, they're going to get to do, and they're going to be super excited about it. Jesus is going to keep teaching them through chapter 10. We're not going to get any farther today. But the thing that I wanted to end with this morning is that this is the pattern of disciple-making that Jesus teaches us. And this is the pattern of disciple-making that we are called to continue. Matthew 28, the end of this book, Jesus, we've, we've talked about this passage a lot. It's a pretty important one. But 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus says, make disciples, and he's telling these 12 guys this, what do you think these guys are thinking? They're thinking, oh, like you made us. Like you poured your life into us. You spent time with us. You spent energy on us. You, you showed us how to do it. You let us try it out. You uh, debriefed it with us. You let us do it again. You called us away from the crowds to spend time with you. That's what it looks like to make a disciple. And we don't just get that from Jesus. We see that in Paul as well. Paul is one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived and and an early follower of Jesus. And he writes in 2 Timothy, which is towards... Towards the back of the Bible. Second Timothy is, is Paul's last letter. He's going to be executed in Rome. And he writes to Timothy, his student, his disciple, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And notice what is listed there. There's, there's four generations of people. There's Paul. Paul teaches Timothy. And he says, Timothy, take what you know and find faithful men, that's the third generation, who will be able to teach others also. The fourth one. And so generation by generation by generation, the disciple of Jesus multiplies the kingdom of God by pouring their lives into the lives of others. And like we said at the beginning, this is Jesus' plan. This is how the church covers the earth. This is how the kingdom of God spreads, is by disciples, like you and me, being disciples, And the hard part about that is that, at least in our country, we've we've trained ourselves to think that that maybe it works differently. Like Jesus invested his life in 12 guys, but man, if we could get 3,000, we could do it way better. I mean, Jesus had thousands, but he he didn't spend a lot of time with the thousands. Or sometimes we think, yeah, well... 
in America, we pay some people to do that for us. The professionals, they're the, they're the ones that make disciples and everybody else just comes to church. But that's not the categories that Jesus has. Jesus just has one category and it's the disciple, the one who follows Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus means you find others and you bring them along with you. And so the challenge for us this morning is this question. In in 2 Timothy 2.2, there's four people, four generations of people. And the question for all of us is, which one are you? Are you, are you a Paul? Are you an elder follower of Christ who, who is passing your wisdom down to a new generation? Are you a Timothy? Or are you a young leader who's just beginning to disciple others? Are you one of the faithful men or women that he's talking about? Are you new at following Jesus? Have you never really thought about what it means to be a disciple? Do you need training? And it really doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You can still not be very far along as a disciple. Or are you one of the fourth generation? Maybe maybe you're not even a Christian yet. Maybe you're just asking questions still. Maybe you haven't quite figured it out, what it means to be a follower of Christ. But as Jesus teaches and shows us what it means to make disciples, he doesn't really give us any other options. There's, this, is, this is what we're supposed to be about. And we have to work hard to be about it because it's hard to do. It's funny, like I, I have, I've had conversations with guys who um, I said, hey, you wanna, you wanna get together and you know, like study the Bible together or read a book or something? And it feels like, like you're asking a girl out on a date. It's super awkward. Because <laughs> we, don't, we don't think this way. We don't, we don't do this kind of stuff. We don't see ourselves as disciples. We just see ourselves as churchgoers, nice people. I believe that stuff about Jesus. And those are all good things. But Jesus calls us to something bigger than that. And that was, the, that was the only plan. So like if we want to be people who say, we want to reach our city, some like 69% of Coeur d'Alene doesn't know Jesus at all. Then, then, then you take the other people that maybe go to church and still don't know Jesus. Like there's, there's a lot of people that need the gospel in this city, not to mention all of the surrounding cities. And if we want to be people that are effective in Jesus' mission here, this is, this is how we do it. Like there's not, a, there's not another option. Jesus says, come hang out with me. Let me teach you what I know and then go out and do it yourself and find others and teach them what you know and then get them to go out and do it themselves. And then, fi- and then they can find others and teach what they know and on and on and on. And we're going to continue learning a little bit more about this mission that they're going to be on in the coming weeks. But the principle of how Jesus raised up his disciples is one that doesn't change. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, where are we at 
in this process? And, and what do we need? Some of us need to bravely say, hey, can I meet with you and teach you what I know about Jesus? And some of us need to go like, hey, I don't know anything about Jesus. Will you teach me some things? Because we need to be growing and we need each other to do that. So pray about that. Pray about what that looks like in your life. For some of us, our children are our disciples. Like some of you that have young kids, moms, like you pour your life into these young people so that they can learn what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, thanks for a chance to just kind of see how you do things. Lord, you challenge us because we are often content to be um, just attenders at church, maybe even privately devoted to you, but giving our time, giving our energy into raising up another generation of followers of Jesus, that's hard work. And God, it's work that honestly, like we haven't been trained to do. We haven't been taught to do. Many times those that have taught us have taught us differently or have not taught us at all. The idea of being somebody that knows something about you enough to teach somebody else, that's scary. But God, you've, you've put us all on this journey to seek you, to follow you, to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, I just pray that you would continue to show us what it means to follow you. And God, as we, as we sing, as we um, take communion, God, I pray that you would make your presence known to us this morning. We'd hear your voice. God, we are, we are confident in you. I just pray that we would be built up in that confidence this morning. God bless your people as we as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.